Good afternoon. Try that again. It's a privilege to be with you men this afternoon. Please turn in your Bibles to the book of Zephaniah. Zephaniah. It is my intention to try to survey the entire book of Zephaniah with you in this session. And to set the stage, let's just read the first three verses. Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 1. The word of Yahweh, which came to Zephaniah, son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah, I will completely end all things from the face of the ground, declares Yahweh. I will end man and beast. I will end the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea and the ruins along with the wicked, and I will cut off man from the face of the ground, declares Yahweh. Pray one more time. Father, we desperately need your help. We long to see your glory in this book. So we pray that your spirit would illuminate our minds and strengthen us to leave this place more like Jesus because of it. Amen. God warns us that he is going to destroy everyone. He's going to pour out his wrath on every human being. In verse 3, he says that he's going to wipe out in this particular order man, then beast, then birds, and then fish, which is a complete reversal of creation. On days 5 and 6 of creation, he created in the opposite order, fish, then birds, then beast, then man. God says he's going to wipe it all clean. In fact, in verse 15, he says he's going to bring back thick darkness upon the earth. That's to bring the creation back to its pre-let-there-be-light status. God's going to burn it all down, and the entire created order is going to be undone. And Zephaniah, in trying to help us wrap our minds around this idea of global judgment, uses a lot of flood language as well. Notice in verse 3, he says, it's going to cut off mankind from the face of the ground. That's the phrase that he uses in Genesis 6-7. And so that provides a a good introduction for us into this topic of the wrath of God in Zephaniah chapter 1. You remember in Genesis chapter 6 that every intention of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil all the time. And so Yahweh, who is a warrior, took out his bow and he took his arrows and he rained judgment upon mankind, killing millions and millions of people and animals from the face of the ground. And then God retired his bow in the sky in victory, and he made a promise that he would never flood the earth with water again. And God has been patient now for thousands of years, so patient that mockers deny that more judgment will ever come. But Peter reminds us in 2 Peter chapter 3 that the mockers deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Peter reminds us that God has judged the entire world before. He did it last time with fire. Next time, forgive me, he did it last time with water. This time, this next time, he's doing it with fire. Yahweh is still a warrior, and though he has hung his bow in the sky, he never relinquished his sword. And though it is true that God has 
hung up his long-range weapon, his bow in the sky. That only means the next time he comes to bring judgment upon the face of the ground, he's doing it up close and personal. Next time he's coming to place his feet on this earth, Zechariah 14.4, and he will slay all mankind with the sword of his mouth. He's coming and he's bringing his hellfire with him. Say, Josiah, I thought we were going to talk about the remnant. That sounds pretty dark. Why are we talking about wrath? Well, what's a remnant? Like, at its heart, what does it mean? What does the word mean, to remain? A remnant is a small group that remains. Remains after what? Read through the Old Testament. We find Noah, right? He remained after the destruction of the flood. We see a remnant returns after the destruction of Jerusalem. Romans 9, which we saw this morning, the remnant will be saved from the execution of God's judgment. But ultimately... Yahweh's remnant is those of us who remain after Zephaniah 1, those who remain after the day of Yahweh, the day that Yahweh cleanses his creation with fire. And so in light of this coming judgment, in light of Yahweh's wrath, the only question that should be on our minds and anyone's mind is, who gets to remain? That's the question that Zephaniah answers for us. We'll outline his argument in three aspects of salvation to help us live today in light of Yahweh's day. Three aspects of salvation that will help us live today in light of Yahweh's day. First in chapter 1, the need for salvation. Second in chapter 2 and a few verses into chapter 3, the call to salvation. And finally, the promise of salvation in the last half of chapter 3. We'll read our text as we we go along. Uh, Notice Going back to Zephaniah 1-2, that God promises to end all things. This is not hyperbole. There's no exaggeration. Mankind is so wicked that God promises to wipe it all out. And just to make sure we understand that all means all, he says in verse 3, I will end man and beast, birds of the sky, fish of the sea, and the ruins along with the wicked, and I will cut off man from the face of the ground, declares Yahweh. So man who's the last created in Genesis 1 is now the first to be destroyed on the day of Yahweh because man is the cause, man is the problem. It's man's sins that brings about this total destruction. And notice especially that phrase at the end of verse 3 that God is going to wipe out the ruins along with the wicked. Normally, you know, when you think of a destruction like the destruction of a city, the army comes in and kills all the people, but what's left? Well, what's left are the ruins of the city, but not this time. This time, God's wiping it all out. He's making an utter end to everything and everyone, apparently without exception. Apparently, this time, there will be no remnant. He's going to kill every inhabitant of the earth. God's going to melt down the very elements of this entire physical creation, as Peter said, and burn it all down. But most terrifyingly, as we enter into verse 4, he's going to start this judgment with his own people. Notice verse 4, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Remember a little bit of the context here in Zephaniah. He gives us the chronology in verse 1. We're in Josiah's reign. We're in the 600s BC. As far as chronology then, Assyria has already taken the north captive in 722. Babylon is on the cusp, ready to exile Judah Judah deserves it. They're idolaters. Manasseh's offering his own son to false gods. 
And so Zephaniah is prophesying about this day of Yahweh's wrath, and he, he's mixing together two distinct days. He's, he's weaving together a prophecy of near judgment, the destruction of Jerusalem in 586, and far judgment, the great tribulation. So in just a few years, there would be a day of Yahweh's wrath. Jerusalem would be destroyed and the king's sons would be slaughtered. But that impending destruction of Jerusalem mainly serves as a platform for Zephaniah to call the whole world to flee the day of Yahweh, the great tribulation, the destruction of the cosmos. And that's the main point of this book. In fact, the book of Zephaniah is written and included in the book of the Twelve after the destruction of Jerusalem as a warning. And so it's a warning to us as well on whom the end of the world has come. And what principle do you think we should draw out of the fact that the very first people Yahweh addresses in judgment are his own people? First Peter four seventeen. judgment begins with the household of God. Those most responsible are those who have God's word, who have God's law. It's Capernaum who's judged with a greater condemnation than Sodom because they rejected Jesus. So God says he's going to stretch out his hand against Jerusalem, and it's only later in chapter 2 that he addresses the nations. And that should terrify us. Because of all the people who have ever lived in the history of the world, we know God's truth best. We have Jesus. We preach God's word every week. If we in this room find ourselves in this judgment, we will burn the hottest of all. Because we're the most responsible. That's what the scriptures teach. That's what Hebrews 10 teaches. It's those who know who Jesus is, who know of his cross and his spirit, and then reject him that deal with that terrible reality of falling into the hands of the living God who is a consuming fire. He says of those who deliberately sin by spurning Christ, lead them to me. I will avenge the blood of my son. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. The Lord will judge his people. Now why, why is God so angry with his people, those who confess his name? Look at verse 5. Because his people who are confessing his name, who are swearing to him, last line of verse 5, also are swearing by Milcom. And God hates this syncretistic worship even more than he hates paganism. Because his people know better. And yet, verse 4, we see that they're Baal worshippers. Verse 5, we see that they're astral worshippers. You cannot worship Yahweh and something else. Yahweh is a jealous God who demands absolute allegiance, total loyalty. And sadly, things have not changed much in our day. Sure, the names of our gods are different. Right? The prosperity gospel is our Baal. Word faith movement is our astral worship. We've come up with more sophisticated names, but our idolatrous hearts still lust after the same sin. And God says he's going to wipe it all out. Verse 7, be silent before Lord Yahweh, for the day of Yahweh is near. Yahweh's judgment is coming soon for all sinners. That phrase, be silent, is a Hebrew interjection that could just be translated, shh, just stop, just be quiet for a second and think about how desperate your need is. Do you know who is coming in judgment against sinners? It is Lord Yahweh, the omnipotent sovereign, the immutable invictus, 
He is coming, holy, jealous, and the day of vengeance is in his heart. In Psalm 90, verse 11, Moses says that no one fears Yahweh as much as they should. No one fears Yahweh as much as they would if they truly knew the fury of his anger. That is, if we really knew Yahweh, we would all be much more afraid. Second half of verse 7, for Yahweh has prepared a sacrifice. He has set apart his guests. You think, wait, sacrifice is a good thing, right? Well, it's good when we sacrifice to Yahweh. But this time, Yahweh is the one making the sacrifice, and the wicked are on his altar. Verse 8, then it will be on the day of Yahweh's sacrifice that I will punish the princes, the king's sons. Right? Judah, like the northern tribes there, they're thinking God's going to judge their enemies. They're praying. They're saying, Yahweh, come and fix this. And God says, don't pray for my coming. I'm not coming for your enemies. I'm coming for you to slit your throat, to skin you, cut up the pieces, and burn you. Because that's what a sacrifice is. That's what that word means. Now, I can imagine for some of you hearing this language of wrath and vengeance, you might be thinking, I'm not sure who you're talking about. I mean, God is gracious. God is merciful. Jesus is love. Well, those who laughed are at the right conference. Because <laughs> if your God is just those things, if your God is just love, then his name is Milcom. He's an idol you fabricated in your own mind after your own image. Men, if you preach a God who is all love and no wrath, you are not preaching the God of the Bible. You're not preaching the Jesus of the Bible. Notice, go back to verse 1, the first phrase. Who is speaking here? Who is revealing these words? It says that this is the revelation of the word of Yahweh. And who is the word of Yahweh? His name is Jesus Christ. And here he is doing what he does best, showing us the glory of God. And he reveals the Father to us. Here he's revealing to us the glory of God's hatred of sin, the glory of God's wrath, the glory of God's justice in action. Lord Yahweh is coming in judgment to eradicate sin from the world, and we should worship him for that. We should stand in awe of his majesty and his character. The point is there's a great need then for every sinner to escape this judgment. How could a sinner escape? Well, maybe, maybe verse 12, maybe they can hide from Yahweh. Verse 12, and it will be at that time that I will search Jerusalem with lamps. <laughs> that is, Lord Yahweh won't miss anyone. He's going to go house to house and make sure every person receives the judgment they deserve. Because judgment's going to catch up to everyone. Notice they're saying at the end of verse 12, Yahweh won't do good or evil. That is, he won't bless us if we obey. He won't punish us if we do evil. They thought they could get away with their sin. That's what we think every time we sin. There's not going to be any consequences for this. Jesus died for this sin. Zephaniah says, wrong. Everything we sow, we reap. God cannot be mocked, Galatians 6. And that's what this day of Yahweh is all about. The day of Yahweh is the day of Yahweh's vindication. All theodicy questions will be set to rest. And we will see that Yahweh and Yahweh alone was right. And that should terrify the ungodly. Verse 14, second half. Oh, the sound, the day of Yahweh. In it the mighty man cries out bitterly. 
you know, we're unaccustomed to the realities of, of war. Most of us have never heard the terrifying screams of the battle cry. But imagine what it would be like for the women and children if they heard their husband and father crying out as he's slain in battle. If the mighty man is crying out bitterly, your death is at the door. Verse 15, it's a day of fury, a day of trouble, distress, a day of destruction, desolation, a day of darkness and thick darkness, a day of clouds and dense gloom, a day of trumpet and loud shouting, a day of Yahweh's all wrath, all gloom, all destruction, all darkness, all death for sinners. How great is our need. Verse 16 continues, it's against the fortified cities, against the high corner towers. There's no place to hide. No fortress will protect you. Yahweh is coming. And why is he coming? Second half of verse 17, because they have sinned against Yahweh and God hates sinners. He abhors sinners. Psalm 5, 5. Their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. It's this graphic battlefield imagery that no one's going to escape. Everyone will die. There, there won't be anyone left even to clean up the bodies. God says their flesh will be scattered around the ground like dung. Corpses strewn from here to there with no one to clean up the mess because they're all dead. How much Yahweh must hate sin to respond in this way? Verse 18, neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them. You can't buy another army to protect you. Who would you hire to stand against the Almighty? In this great tribulation, verse 18, on the day of the fury of Yahweh, all the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy, and he will make a complete destruction, indeed a terrifying one, of all the inhabitants of the earth. Yahweh is a jealous God, and very soon the day will come when he unleashes the full fury of that anger. And God's rampage of destruction will make a terrifying end of every inhabitant on the face of the earth. No one will stand against him on that day. So we need to live today in light of this day. We need to hate our sin like God hates it. We need to kill it by any means necessary and flee from the wrath of Yahweh. But as we finish this first chapter of Zephaniah 1, it appears as if no one can. All the inhabitants of the earth will die. There seems to be no hope. Until we remember that Yahweh did not have to warn us. Right? If he's warning us, it's out of love because there is hope. You, you warn your child not to stick their hand in the fire because you do not want them to be burned by the fire. Even the pagan king of Nineveh understood this. In 40 days... Well, maybe if we repent before it comes, Yahweh will spare us. And we know that's the reason because of chapter 2. We've seen our need for salvation, now the call to salvation. Chapter 2, verse 1. God says, gather yourselves together. Indeed, gather, consider, think, O nation without shame, before the decree takes effect. The day passes like the chaff before the burning anger of Yahweh comes upon you. Again, Yahweh's day is inevitable. It's decreed. You can't stop it from coming, but you can do something before it arrives. So what do you do? Flee. Flee from Yahweh's wrath. But here's the thing. If we've understood correctly Zephaniah chapter 1, we know that's impossible. Flee where to? (laughs) Yahweh's judgment is going to burn down every galaxy in the universe. And there's no use looking for help. Who could provide refuge from omnipotent wrath? And that's precisely the point. 
God has left us with no other option except himself. To flee from Yahweh, you must flee to Yahweh. Verse 3, seek Yahweh, the only one strong enough to provide you refuge from Yahweh's omnipotent wrath is Yahweh himself. We of all people know this because we know the gospel. Only the omnipotent power of the Son could endure the omnipotent wrath of the Father on our behalf. So don't try a way to find a way around him. Seek him. Seek him and live. And not externally. He doesn't tell us to go to the temple or to offer more sacrifices or to give our tithes. He says, seek Yahweh. Give him your whole allegiance. Verse 3 then ends with, perhaps you will be hidden in the day of Yahweh's anger. Seek Yahweh. It's your only chance of survival. Well, we're going to fast forward here for a little bit in the rest of this section. Big picture for the rest of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3. God looks to the four corners of the globe and pronounces his vengeance upon all his enemies. Notice verses 4 to 7. The Philistines in the west will be wiped out. Then Moab to the east in verses 8 through 11 will become like Sodom. Then Ethiopia to the south will be slain by Yahweh's sword in verse 12. Verses 13 through 15, Assyria to the north will perish. And finally, Jerusalem will be devoured in chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. But what's fascinating about this section is the fact that we learn in this section that the destruction of the world is not just for the punishment of the ungodly. God is destroying the ungodly on behalf of his remnant. Yahweh is a jealous God with the jealous love for his remnant, and he's going to wipe out all her enemies and make the earth a refuge for his remnant. Notice in chapter 2, verse 7, the end of the section where he's condemning the Philistines. Why is God wiping out the Philistines? Verse 7, chapter 2, verse 7, and the coast will be for the remnant of the house of Judah. See, the world has reviled and persecuted God's remnant. Chapter 2, verse 8, I've heard the reproach of Moab, the revilings of the sons of Ammon, with which they have reproached my people. And Yahweh takes it very personally when his people are persecuted. Even Jerusalem herself has participated in the persecution of God's people so that they will be destroyed. Chapter 3, verse 1, Jerusalem's compared to Nineveh. It's called the oppressive city, devouring God's people like wolves. So God is judging all sinners, in order to make the earth a sanctuary for his chosen remnant. And this is intended to be a great comfort for the remnant, for God's people. And that might be hard for us to understand because we live in a context in the West where we're so far from being physically persecuted in this way. The the thought that Yahweh's vengeance against our enemies could provide us with comfort and rest is, is a foreign thought. But Considering Yahweh's vengeance should be life-altering for us, life-changing, completely liberates us from the need to, to hate the world back, lifts our worship to God. Just think about this. Let's say, Crystal, my wife and I are out and about. We're at a store, and Crystal starts to interact with an unbeliever and invites her to church, starts to share with her about Jesus and and this unbeliever mocks her and insults her and 
and walks away. We finish, we're paying, we get in our cars in the parking lot, we're driving away, and there's the lady again, and she cuts us off, honks the horn, yells at us, curses at us. How would we normally sinfully respond to that? We get angry, we want to honk back, yell back, take some sort of vengeance. But what if God gave us a glimpse of the future? And we saw this lady cut us off, storm into the street, and a semi comes by out of nowhere and slams into her, and she dies in a fiery explosion. Like, if you knew that was her end 10 seconds after she insulted you, I don't think you'd get angry. I think you'd be filled with pity and sadness. How much more so knowing that every unbeliever who hurts you is going to face the wrath of Lord Yahweh, right? I mean, if someone insults my wife, my first words very well could be, whoa, do you know who her dad is? She's the daughter of Lord Yahweh. If you don't ask forgiveness, he is going to tear you limb from limb. After he kills you, he's going to resurrect you and give you an immortal body so that he can throw you in hell and you can endure his wrath forever. That just frees us from any need for payback. Like... Why would I take vengeance myself knowing who God is? But it also does something else, doesn't it? It causes us to join with Yahweh in calling people to repentance and salvation. Saying, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. They do not know what's coming for them. They do not know who's coming for them. Save them, Father. Save them from your wrath. We preach Turn to Yahweh and be saved. All the ends of the earth, Isaiah 45. We plead with them, weeping. Be reconciled to God. You have an omnipotent enemy. Flee from his wrath. Be reconciled to God. But for those who will not repent, we wait. We wait for Yahweh. God tells the martyred souls in Revelation 6, Just wait a little longer. And in fact, that's the summary statement of this section. Chapter 3, verse 8. God says, Therefore, wait for me. Zephaniah 3, 8. Therefore, wait for me, declares Yahweh, for the day when I rise up as a witness. Indeed, my judgment is to assemble nations, to gather kingdoms, to pour out on them my indignation, all my burning anger, for all the earth will be devoured by the fire of my jealousy. The point is that God is going to gather up all the sinners of the world and pour out his anger on them. And that, of course, as I said, should cause unbelievers to fear God's wrath and escape hell, plead with God to forgive them. But notice the primary purpose of verse 8 is not for the unbeliever. It's directed toward the remnant. God tells his remnant, wait for me. Trust in my vengeance. Wait. And when we wait and we worship our God, our comprehension of his wrath absolutely increases our worship. To to understand his jealous power and wrath, right? It, It just gives us complete security knowing that nothing could possibly happen to us unless the Lord deems it best for us. 
And also because God's wrath against sinners magnifies his mercy toward us. We heard that a little bit about that this morning. Right? Romans 9, 22. Let me reread it. Romans 9, 22. What if God, wanting to demonstrate his wrath to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath, having been prepared for destruction? Why did he do that? It says, in order, verse 23, in order that he might make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. God pours out his wrath on sinners in order to magnify his mercy upon his remnant. Those of us who deserve his wrath and yet are spared. So often those of us who are in Christ, we, we forget about God's wrath because we never experience it. Since Christ bore God's wrath for us, All we receive from God is grace and love, but we must never forget who Yahweh is. We worship him best when we understand all of his perfections. He is most glorious just the way that he is, however uncomfortable it makes us feel. We need these texts in scripture that remind us of God's wrath towards sinners. Let me read a few verses from Isaiah 63. Just listen and visualize what God is telling us here. Isaiah asks, Who is this who comes from Edom with garments of glowing colors of Bozrah? This one who is majestic in his clothing, marching in the greatness of his power. God responds, It is I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Isaiah asks, Why is your clothing red and your garments like the one who treads in the winepress? Yahweh responds, I have trotted the wine trough alone. And from the peoples there was no man with me. I also trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. And their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments and I stained all my clothes. For the day of vengeance was in my heart and my year of redemption has come. I looked and there was no one to help. I was astonished that there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought salvation to me and my wrath upheld me. I trod down the peoples in my anger and made them drunk in my wrath. And I brought down their lifeblood to the earth. Yahweh is tossing sinners into his wine trough and stomping them like grapes in a furious rage until their blood has stained all of his garments. And it sounds horrible, but we must meditate on these truths. First of all, holy fear would just grip us as we consider how much Yahweh hates our sin, and that should cause us to not sin not find ourselves in this judgment, but also because as Christians, it deepens our gratitude when we consider what God has done for us. When we consider that we, who rightly and justly lay in Yahweh's winepress, we at that very last moment before God's foot of judgment came down to crush us, Christ appeared and pushed us out of the way and was trodden down on our behalf. And we stand here, our clothes, our faces splattered with his precious blood, astonished, amazed, standing before this crucified lamb, saying, why me? You see, the more we understand God's wrath, the more we understand what God has done in saving us. Right? When we, how could we not worship? When we understand that, that Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath, the wrath that we see here, the wrath that burns down the entire physical creation, a fire so hot 
that it will melt down the very elements of every galaxy that exists in this world. That's the wrath that Jesus drank down to the dregs on your behalf and on my behalf. How can we not sing, Hallelujah, what a Savior, Father, Son, and Spirit, full of vengeance and yet full of mercy. What an amazing God we worship. Do you live in light of these truths? Does it move you to worship Him, to give your life, to serve Him, to serve the one who gave you His life, who bore all of God's wrath on your behalf, to preach of the glory of this Christ, our King, to to call all men to worship Him. From the rising of the sun to its setting, His name must be great among the nations. The more we worship, Christ, the more it affects everything we do. Well, there's a massive question that remains at this point in the book of Zephaniah. We've seen mankind's great need. Yahweh's coming for all sinners in judgment. We've seen God call all mankind to salvation, to flee to him. But how can God do this? How can there be a remnant left if every sinner deserves wrath and all of us are sinners? How can Yahweh spare a remnant? So verse 9 of chapter 3, the promise of salvation. Zephaniah 3, 9, the promise of salvation. For then I will change them to peoples with purified lips. This is the promise of regeneration and then future total glorification. And say, well, he just mentions purified lips. Well, Remember, Jesus is out of the heart, the mouth speaks. James says that if someone does not sin sin with his tongue, he's a perfect man. If you have perfect speech, you have a perfect heart. So God is promising to regenerate his remnant. And this is how Yahweh can spare the remnant. His wrath is coming for all sinners, but his remnant won't be sinners anymore when he cleanses them and purifies them. Because after he changes them, after he regenerates them, the the verse continues, that all of them may call on the name of Yahweh. So first he changes them, and then they call on his name. First regeneration, then conversion. The blind sees because he was given eyes to see. Then what comes next? The fruit of repentance. Notice end of verse 9. To serve him shoulder to shoulder. So after calling on Yahweh's name, there's fruit. This is literally the Old Testament version of what we just read out of Ephesians 2. Paul says he makes us alive. Zephaniah, Yahweh will change them. Paul says we're saved by faith, not works. Zephaniah says they will call on Yahweh's name. No mention of the law. Paul says then we will walk in the good works that he prepared beforehand. Zephaniah says then they will serve him shoulder to shoulder. The Bible is astonishingly consistent. Obviously it has one perfect author. The ones that remain and are saved from God's wrath are the one he chooses to be born again, to be made new. Now, who is this promise for? Is this just for Israel? Verse 10. From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my worshipers, my scattered ones, will bring my offerings. Remarkable. He says they're going to come from all the way south of the rivers of Ethiopia, which is another way of saying that Yahweh promises to save people from the ends of the earth. Zephaniah has already hinted at this in verse 11 of chapter 2. 
Turn back to Zephaniah 2, 11. It says, Yahweh will be fearsome to them. He will starve all the gods of the earth. Yahweh is mocking the false gods like he does so often. After he kills all the idolaters, the false gods are going to starve because there's no one to feed them. (laughs) God doesn't need food. But then notice second half of 2.11, and all the coastlands of the nations will bow down to him, everyone from his own place. The nations are worshiping Yahweh from their nations. You might say, wow, I mean, that's, that's us here today, right? Worshiping from the ends of the earth. Well, wait just a second. We are getting a taste of it in this age, but this is speaking, remember, after the day of Yahweh. This is talking about a day at the end of the great tribulation, a a time of global regeneration and restoration led by Israel. Jeremiah 23, Yahweh gathers them together. Of course, we too are invited to this feast. We too are Abraham's heirs by faith. But the point is this, this is a future regeneration of all things. That's actually the way Jesus uses the word regeneration in Matthew 19. The regeneration is when Jesus sits on his glorious throne in a new creation. So what we experience today in regeneration is a privilege. It's a spiritual taste. We're made new creations inwardly. But our current regeneration is just getting us ready for the glorious regeneration of all things in the age to come. Notice verse 11 In that day you will feel no shame because of all your deeds by which you have transgressed against me. I mean, the remnant will be so cleansed, so washed, that they're going to feel no shame. Now, we know how that happens. They should have known how that happens. Isaiah 53 had already been written that Yahweh has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Messiah. Zephaniah just focuses on the results Right? And he says, after this salvation, God not only forgives their sin, he will also remove the shame of that sin. Extraordinary. It's like what Paul says in Colossians 1 that Christ is going to present us to his Father, holy and blameless and above reproach. Can you imagine the Yahweh that, that we know from Zephaniah 1 and 2, the Yahweh, Lord Yahweh, in all his burning holiness? is going to look you up and down from head to toe and find nothing to reproach. I mean, you and all your sin and all your filthiness will be so purified, so sanctified, that you will stand before the Father and have nothing to hide. No shame. That's that's remarkable. That's remarkable. This applies to all of God's people for all of eternity. Verse 11, I will remove from your midst your proud, exulting ones, and you will never again be haughty on my holy mountain. Because I, verse 12, but I will cause to remain in your midst a lowly and poor people, and they will take refuge in the name of Yahweh, in my character. Notice who is determining, who is sovereignly electing the remnant, Why are you a part of the remnant? Because Yahweh has caused you to be. Not by merit. You're a sinner that deserves Zephaniah 1 and 2. We're a remnant chosen by grace. Romans 11. We remain because he changed us. Changed us, it says, to be a lowly people. A poor people. Those who are spiritually bankrupt. It's the poor in spirit who inherit the land, those who do not trust in their own righteousness, but who hunger and thirst 
for God's righteousness. Verse 13, the remnant of Israel will do no, un, no injustice and not speak falsehood, nor will a deceitful tongue be found in their mouths, for they will feed and lie down with no one to make them tremble. God promises that with these purified lips, they will speak no falsehood. They'll be perfect. And how perfect? It says the remnant will do no injustice. And that's especially astonishing if we turn back to verse 5 of chapter 3, Zephaniah 3, 5, which says, Yahweh is righteous in her midst. Yahweh will do no injustice. And so now Zephaniah takes a line which describes an attribute of Yahweh and applies it to Yahweh's remnant. So it's not just justification we're talking about, not just forgiveness, it's total glorification The remnant will no longer sin at this point. The people of God will become like God in all his communicable attributes. We will be like him, 1 John 3, 2. In the new Jerusalem, soon, someday, we will worship God perfectly with purified lips. That should be a strong motivation for us to obey, to worship God today, to abandon our sin and to worship him. You say, okay, I I mean, I I get it. We escape wrath, and that's wonderful. I get to remain, and I'll be pure. But but then what? What does the remnant remain for? What's the purpose of all of this? Verse 14. Sing for joy, O daughter of Zion. Make a loud shout, O Israel. Be glad and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. This is celebration. And why? Verse 15. Because Yahweh has taken away his judgments against you. He's cleared away your enemies. The king of Israel, Yahweh, is in your midst. You will fear evil no more. What does this mean that Yahweh is in our midst? Well, remember, Yahweh is the name of our triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. But when Yahweh makes his tabernacle among men, when Yahweh walks among men, we're talking about the eternal Son of God, King Jesus, the image of the invisible God. Zechariah 14.4 says that on this day, Yahweh's feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. And that's why we know we're talking about Jesus because he's the only member of the Trinity with feet. What is this experience going to be like when Jesus is back? Verse 17. Yahweh your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will be joyful over you with gladness. He will be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with joyful singing. I mean, is that incomprehensible? His love for us overflows in song. It says he will be quiet in his love. One commentator states, To consider Almighty God sinking in contemplations over a once wretched human being can hardly be absorbed by the human mind. But that's exactly what God is saying. Jesus is singing. He's so in love with his bride. I mean, you just have to stop and let that sink in. To imagine that Christ, the Lamb who deserves to be sung for all eternity, is singing over us. You know, we often talk about what it's going to be like to sing in heaven. I have a son who says in heaven he's going to sing like jubilant sex. (laughs) There's glorified vocal cords. And how lovely that's going to be. I say, no, think about what it's going to be like to hear Yahweh sing. To hear Jesus sing his love song. That'll be the moment where his petition in John 17, 23 is answered, the moment that we know that Jesus loves us like the Father loves him. I mean, think about that. 
Imagine the perfect, eternal, unbreakable love of the Father towards his beloved Son. He delights in everything about his Son. The Father is eternally enraptured with every attribute of his perfect Son. Imagine that eternal love, because that is how you are loved in Christ. We need to beg God to help us comprehend the breadth, the length, the height, the depth of the love of Christ. It's extraordinary. And so in this final section, God is answering for us how and why the remnant remains. How can sinners remain? Well, because God's going to make them pure and holy, no longer sinners. And why would God love us so? Well, because by the Father's electing grace, through the Son's redemptive cross, through the Spirit's sanctifying power, we will be changed perfectly into Christ's image. We will be transformed into the image of Christ. And Yahweh will love his people then precisely because we will reflect all of the perfections that he has worked in us, his justice, his mercy, his love, his grace, yes, even his hatred toward sin, his wrath, which is a wonderful attribute. It'll be wonderful to be like that because when we hate sin like Yahweh hates sin, we'll stop sinning altogether. You couldn't sin if you hated it like Yahweh does. And so you see, this, this isn't about us Yahweh's not singing over us because we're so lovely. This is about God's loveliness. Yahweh will delight in us because with the Spirit in us, we will radiate the beauty of Christ. And Christ, as the splendor of God's glory, will in turn magnify his Father. We will do this. We, the remnant. And I say we deliberately because we live in a narcissistic society. You hear people saying, I'm the bride of Christ. No, no you're not the bride of Christ. We are the bride of Christ together. And the point is that on this day in the eschaton, the entire remnant together, billions of us probably, we together will radiate Christ's glory and loveliness throughout the world. Which is why we finish up Zephaniah 3 here real quick. No believer can be left out. Look at verse 19. I'm going to deal with, at that time, those who afflict you. I will save the lame and gather the banished. I will turn them in their shame into a praise and a name in all the earth. No disability will prevent a child of Yahweh from returning. No lame will be left abandoned. No prisoner, no banished soldier will be left behind. Yahweh is bringing all his children home. No one can snatch them out of his hand. And now, safe and blessed, we fill the earth. Just like Yahweh's wrath filled the earth in chapter 1, now the remnant has a name in all the earth. Verse 20, at that time I will bring you in, even at the time when I gather you together. Indeed, I will give you to be a name and a praise among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says Yahweh. Just to clarify something theologically real quick, I think here in this section of Zephaniah 3, like many Old Testament prophets, Zephaniah is mixing together promises about the millennial kingdom and the eternal state kind of all together. And we, we could sit here and debate about what applies to, to what. But I think the important thing to note here is that it's all future for Zephaniah. It's all the eschaton. There, there are naysayers that teach that the first half of Zephaniah is just talking about the destruction of Jerusalem in 586. And the second half of Zephaniah is just talking about the return of the exiles in 538. But that just cannot be. Because... Chapter 1 is talking about global destruction, just like here in chapter 3, it's talking about global restoration. And the only question then is whether you're living today in light of this future day. The Yahweh's coming full of wrath and vengeance for all sinners, and Yahweh's coming 
full of love and full of mercy and full of grace for his remnant? Are you living today in light of Yahweh's day? Does it constrain you to serve him, to meditate upon him, to marvel at all his attributes, to give your life as a sacrifice for him? Well, we've seen that we have a great need for salvation because Yahweh is coming for all sinners. So everyone is called to flee from Yahweh's wrath. And if we do, we're promised salvation, which is to become like Jesus. And to conclude, I think most of us, we've, we've heard the, the illustration, right, of salvation being like this sort of celestial courtroom scene. And we're the criminal defendant, we're on trial. We're the guilty murderer, the blasphemer, the thief. And you're standing before this holy and perfect judge. You deserve to be thrown into hell and receive his wrath for your crimes. But this substitute appears, Jesus. And he offers to be punished instead of you. He offers to receive the wrath and the condemnation that you deserve. And so the judge receives Jesus as a substitute, punishes him, and you're declared innocent of all your crimes. You're righteous. And we often call this the good news of the gospel, our justification, that we, by the life and death and ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ, we've been declared righteous before God. We've escaped God's wrath. And while that is good news, especially in light of how terrible God's wrath is, Zephaniah is here to tell us that that is only a small portion of the very best news. Our justification is good news, but it's just a part. Because the judge, like any judge, could declare you righteous, let you go free, and still never want to see you again. Right? A judge could declare you innocent and not want to spend time with you. Zephaniah tells us that the gospel of Yahweh is not just being a remnant spared from his wrath. It's remaining to be objects of his eternal love. That's an amazing truth. The gospel is that this perfect and wonderful judge declares us righteous so that he can adopt us into his family, give us the same inheritance of his eternal son, and celebrate us, sing over us, work his perfections in us, and enjoy us for all eternity. That day's coming, men. It's coming soon. Don't buy into the lie that Zephaniah has already been fulfilled. The destruction of Jerusalem is nowhere near what Zephaniah 1 talked about. And the return of the exiles, while it did foreshadow what Zephaniah promises, does not come close to fulfilling all of these wonderful prophecies. Because Yahweh has yet to return to Jerusalem. Israel's fortunes have yet to be restored. We are still committing injustices. And I've not yet heard Jesus sing. But his day's coming. His day is coming soon and just as sure as the day of Yahweh's wrath against sinners is coming, the day of Yahweh's song is coming for his remnant. Let's live today in light of that day. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your gospel that we've been spared from your omnipotent wrath. We thank you for your gospel that we've been spared for your unbreakable love. We long for that day. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.